Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville, and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. And I'm Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based educational organization also in the highlands of Peru. You might remember our conversation on reflexivity with Dr. Lisa Starr, or the Queen of Awesome. Lisa is an assistant professor in the Department of Integrated Studies and Education at McGill University, as well as the Director of Internships and Student Affairs for the faculty. If you didn't hear our conversation with her, check out episode 6. Our listeners really responded to this episode and reached out to us with questions about issues and characteristics of reflexivity in action research, as it has to do with one's positionality and identities. We are so excited to have Lisa back with us today to address them with Adam and Joe. Thanks for having me. Let's jump in. All right, let's do it. So the first question is from Padul, who I hear recently finished her PhD at the University of Delhi in India. And her question is, closer to my own work in India, where we have adapted participatory methods in research with children about sexuality, one often wondered if we were crossing over from the domain of research to activism. It could be understood that there are no sarcosant domains, but how do we approach such a position? with caution or in enabling ways. So I will leave it up to you all to pick up from there. Uh, Who wants to start? Joe, do you want to chime in? This is an interesting question because action research tries to inherently blow up the distinction between research and action. And sometimes action is activism. Sometimes action is pedagogy. Sometimes action is changing the structures of an organization. In this particular question, we have an interesting framing of what we could think about when we talk about, and I don't know all of the facets of Parul's research in India and what participatory methods they're using with children about sexuality, but I think that action research tries not to distinguish between research and activism. If you're finding things that need to be addressed and you're finding ways of addressing them, that's kind of the point of action research. So it depends upon, I guess, what methodology she's using and how she is engaging in her work. So if it is an action research project, there would be no issue with activism and research because both of those are wrapped into this cycle of asking questions, taking action and reflecting. What do you think, Lisa? I think one of the keys here in the question, and it's hard to answer, is the the nature of the research and the participants themselves. So, you know, in terms of having sacrosanct domains, I think it's a myth that those exist. I think there's so much overlap and complexity in what we do that it makes more sense to look at things as interconnected. 
the one challenge in this question when you're, I think, you know, it's research with children about sexuality. So activism suggests that there's a change that wants to, you know, happen or an awareness that wants to be created. And one of my, I guess, cautionary notes, given the work that I've done in some communities around gender-based violence is once you start bringing that awareness, it comes with it an awareness. And then suddenly, as people understand more, then you have increased reporting sometimes of, in, in our case, of incidents of gender-based violence. And unless there's mechanisms in place to support people as they become more aware and as they become better informed, then sometimes you're potentially creating a risk or problem without intending to do so. And that kind of ties into that caution or enabling ways. So it's, it's just a point, it's something to pay attention to. I don't think it necessarily means you should or shouldn't do the research or you should or shouldn't look at it as activism as much as it, what is your responsibility in doing so? It's not just to be a researcher, it's also to be in some cases a support system or a support mechanism to get people to where they need to be and to make sure that they're not, you know, it goes back to the whole ethical questions around the research that we do. You can't go in to do research and leave people in a position where you've challenged their thinking and then you're just going to abandon them and not give them the support they need to know what to do with that increased awareness. Well, that's, that's usually a good segue, I think, into her next question, actually. So I'm just going to jump right into that because I think that was a really compelling answer. So her next question then, I think as a follow-up is, well, then how do we reflexively address our sense of emotional attachment with our participants and sites of study, right? And, and I, I can relate to where she's coming from here because, yeah. you know, it, <laughs> it's hard to almost accept the fact that like, while we're, you know, while we're calling domains and drawing hard distinctions between research and activism, like we don't have control over our emotions, but when we're dealing with complex issues, I mean, in this example, such as children and sexuality, um, sure, you know, I think you become part of the study, you become connected with the people in which you're working with. And I think this is an interesting question, right? Like, how do we address our sense of attachment with participants, given that we're in a formal research domain? Yeah, it's the attachment, but it's, it's that emotional piece as well. It's kind of the nature of the research that we do, the qualitative type of research, is that you do get to know participants very well, and you do potentially get connected to them as colleagues, as friends, as co-actors in different initiatives. And I think it's an important point, you know, as I mentioned earlier about having that support system for the participants. If you're not aware of that as a researcher, as a potential phenomena, then it, it leaves um, you with some kind of emotional challenges as well to find out what you're supposed to do, especially depending on the nature of the research. If it relates to more sensitive topics, then you're bound to be affected by that. And you have to be prepared for that in some way. Does it have to then reinform the research? Not necessarily, but it certainly could when you talk about reflexive practice. What does this connection tell us about the role that we play in our obligation to the work that we're doing? Yeah, and this is a really deep question. I think this is a question that points to some of the level of skill and thoughtfulness and even what I would call metacognition that is required for action research. When we talk about our sense of emotional attachment when we engage with others in a relational way. And so when we talk about reflexivity, you can't say that reflexivity happens, like Lisa said in episode six, in a vacuum, right? It happens with others. And so it happens in a relational space. 
And when we have relationships, we have some kind of emotional attachment. Usually in action research, we take a position of a caring and curious colleague or a caring and curious friends, collaborator, et cetera. Sometimes that builds in senses of mutual responsibilities. Sometimes it is a certain level of emotional attachment. And what I find interesting is when we talk about metacognition, there are ways in which emotional attachment can be a destructive or a stifling thing. But then there are ways that emotional attachment can be an empowering thing because it can be something where there's a positive relationship being formed and a sense of mutual trust. Whereas sometimes emotional attachment can be the stifling thing where it's somebody caring in a way that doesn't really support the other in that relationship. And so when we talk about reflexively addressing the sense of emotional attachment, we need to be aware of what emotions am I having and how do these emotions either build a sense of trust and collaboration and movement forward in a productive, socially just way, or how do these emotions maybe stifle or suppress or press others because it doesn't allow us to do the things that need to happen in an equitable way? And so I think this question really does get to some deep facets of action research that don't get enough credit for qualitative researchers in general, but something that I think is really important. It's a level, it's a skill, it's an ability that I think really excellent researchers learn, which is this metacognitive space of understanding what our emotional attachments are and also being able to transform them to be something productive rather than problematic. And that ties into ethics and it ties into this web of connections between action, reflexivity and relationships and collaboration that we talk about in action research. I think this question is coming from a person who's either doing their PhD or just finishing their PhD. Isn't that right? Uh, recently finished her, her PhD. Right. And so I think one of the other things to pay attention to is that learning to do research is an ongoing, really never ending process in a lot of ways, you know, especially in education, we use that phrase lifelong learning all the time. It gets bantered around and there's a lot more depth to it than just the phrase. But one of the things that's important here is as we become aware of these challenges, then how then does it shape our approach to research, the types of questions that we want to ask and how we interact with our participants. So it goes back to, I think I talked about this last time is this iterative notion of research instead of it being a straight line where you start at point A, get to point B, move on to point C, you're actually coming, kind of going back and forth to visit points in between all the time. And in, in this case, this notion of being reflexive, the actual thinking through the emotional attachment, even the fact that this parole is posing the question is a, a level of awareness that not everyone would possess. So now it's a question of, okay, now what do I do with this information? How does this now being aware of this emotional attachment influence me as a researcher? And then how then am I going to interact with my participants or colleagues or whomever that they're working with? How is this going to impact those interactions in the future? What could get in the way of that? And then how does it also contribute to the success of the work that I want to do? Because if you're just starting out as a researcher, you're basically kind of, if you think of a novel that has 25 chapters, well, you're on chapter one or two. And so every time you start thinking through and writing more, <laughs> realizing this is a podcast and people can't see, I'm actually turning my hands around and around in this kind of iterative way of thinking. Because this is what every time we learn about this, that what we learn in that chapter then influences the content of the next chapter and then the chapter after that and the chapter after that. And so just like I said, the fact that the person in Peru is asking the question shows that they're already on that path. 
Totally. And, you know, after we all spoke about reflexivity in the last episode, Lisa, I don't know if you remember, but I was like right at that point in, in writing my dissertation proposal where I, I was trying to figure out how to address my own reflexive stance. And I just couldn't figure out how to structure it. And I had like an aha moment when we were talking and when I went back to some of the articles that you wrote, because you use questions to guide your reflexive process. And that like illuminated it all for me. And I was then able to go back and come up with a set of four or five questions, you know, that I could use to address my own reflexive process. And what I realized in doing that was that these aren't just questions I'm asking once in the beginning of this study as part of my introduction and then forgetting about them, right? I think part of it is to have those questions guide you throughout your study. And so to kind of like take what you guys are saying, which I hear is like profound and complex and kind of try and like, for the way that I'm interpreting it through a somewhat, I guess, simple lens is that with respect to how do we reflexively address our sense of emotional attachment. One thing that I would say is like, put it in the form of a question, right? What are the things that you want to be aware of as it relates to your emotional investment in the study? And then keep asking yourself that throughout and circle back and, and address the things that Lisa said, you know, how are these getting in the way? How might they contribute to what I'm doing moving forward? One of my favorite questions is what's missing? Because we have a mm. tendency, uh, one, we, we're kind of trained as researchers to find an answer. And I don't look at it that way. I, I look for what are the questions, the continued questioning that's emerging from this. And yes, we can come up with some answers, but I think it's rarely finite in that we've answered the question and therefore nothing else is required. That's pretty rare. But again, when I'm doing this and I get hung up on points, you know, so this notion of the emotional attachment, the first thing I would do is pause and say, okay, what am I attached to and why? And what's missing from what I'm willing to actually write down? Because there's always things that we have going on that we're not all like that may, in fact, trigger some less comfortable observations because it's harder for us to answer them. And so if we don't know the answer, we don't think we can find the answer. We tend to want to avoid that question. And to me, that's a really important reaction is why would we want to avoid something? And, and this goes to the kinds of researchers that we want to be. I'll give you an example and hopefully it makes sense. My daughter's in health sciences. She was taking a research methods class and it was split into two parts, qualitative and quantitative. First half of the class was qualitative. She absolutely hated it because there was no right or wrong answer all the time. She could memorize what grounded theory was or what ethnography was. But when it came down to asking the questions, she just wanted to know what the answer was. And I said, well, there is no answer because it's a lot more complicated than that because you have to consider, you know, X, Y, Z, and you have to think about what paradigm you're, you're trying to situate yourself in because that's going to influence how you want to ask your questions or what you're actually looking for. It drove her crazy. Like she absolutely hated that part of it. Then when she switched into the quantitative half of the class, she got an A plus, nailed it. 100%. Because the type of thinker she is, is everything is, you know, yes, no, it leads to this, like it's very sequenced for her. And this is the way she thinks. For me, I don't think that way at all. I think in a much more complex roundabout, I can go over here to the left, but it'll carry me back over to the right and back into a story and back over here and forward there. And to me, that's a very comfortable space. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, when you're first starting out as a researcher is to find where your comfort zone is and then to be able to ask yourself, why is this the space that I'm in? So for my daughter, 
we, we had some really interesting conversations about research, but it was so frustrating for her at times because I was trying to explain to her the difference between ontology and epistemology, right? So I think I must have explained it to her. And I'm a teacher, like I'm supposed to be good at explaining things. I must have explained this to her 15 different ways, but she still couldn't get it. And what I came to understand from that, this doesn't connect for her. This isn't the type of research that resonates with her. She can look at standard deviations and things like that, and that makes sense to her. And to me, it's meaningless. And so if that sense of emotional attachment is troubling or bothersome for some people, the question I think you start with is why? Why am I paying attention to this now? And if you go through an entire set of research and never feel a connection to the people you're working with, that's a really big question to ask as well, is why am I not connecting to this? And so it's helping you to situate yourself, not just within the study that you're doing, but as a researcher who is likely intending to continue down that research path for many years to come. And so they, the more comfort people find in the complexity and the uncertainty of it and recognizing their own positionality in it, I think the more um, success they're going to create for themselves in finding uh, and doing really good research that adds to the knowledge or the understanding of the phenomena that we're looking at. Thanks, Lisa. Let's move on to this last question from Powderwolf. Her last question is, does action research pose challenges for ethics approval in your academic context? Who wants to pick this one up? Well, the shorter answer is yes, but Lisa and I have some stories about this that we can talk about a little bit. In some respects, in, in my opinion, this is just how I think about it. What happens with action research is that it's a very ethically oriented research methodology. And so ethics is one of the underlying components of why people engage in action research. At least in my experience, the people in the networks that we have are all very concerned with doing good research well. They want to do good research in terms of quality, but they also want to do good research in terms of making sure that it is, it is a contribution of some kind of positive, productive, socially just contribution to society in some way. It's not just going to sit on a shelf somewhere. And so there's a deep ethical motive for action research as a methodology. However, that ethical motive is, like Lisa said, related to thinking about things in this complex roundabout way. So you have relationships. Relationships reside in a context. Contexts reside in a larger environment. And all of those pieces and facets and relationships and dynamics are all at play when it comes to making decisions because you're going to be making decisions in community and in, in groups and collaboration and taking into consideration the environment and the context within which you're working. So this is all very complicated stuff. But its underlying ethical approach is about that, is about doing good in some way and defining good collaboratively, not just your own definition of good, which is very difficult when you have an academic context that has defined ethics in very black and white terms. So you have what Lisa was talking about, which is we have these kind of fluid ethical norms of we're going to share and we're going to see what's missing and we're going to make sure everybody's voice is heard before making a decision, which is an ethical norm. But you can't say that in the same way on a ethics board form where it's, I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to make sure that there are X, Y, and Z. So if I do this, I need to do that. If I do this, I need to do that. It's very quantitatively oriented because it's based on policy. So it's a quantitative way of thinking where you have linear logical approaches to kind of the ones and zeros or the X's and O's. And if you're going to do qualitative research, you need to make sure that the participants' participation is confidential. And, you know, for a story, one of the challenges that I've had in my work in Peru is 
we did some very rich participatory photo-based work where we had college students who were first generation, first in their families to attend college, move to the city to get an education. So we wanted to reflect with them about their experience. And they took pictures, some really beautiful, wonderful pictures about their experiences, both the challenging ones and the positive ones. And they had some really deep reflections on that. But because of the way in which the ethics review board works, they weren't allowed to get credit for that because they were participants in a study, even though they were artists in this. And we tried to negotiate it and navigate it, but we couldn't do it. And so that to me is also like, we have this tension here, right? So we want to protect the identities of participants in a study, but these aren't research subjects. These are participants in a collaborative endeavor and they should get credit for what they want to do. So there's this ethical tension that happens often when it comes to things like action research, where we're engaged in an equitable dynamic. We're not the researcher looking up, you know, from this distant place and looking on these like subjects who need to be protected from us because we somehow have an overabundance of power that could, could hurt them in some way, but instead we're working in collaboration. Yeah, I mean, there's a fundamental disconnect between kind of the notion of what it means to be ethical and then getting an ethics approval for research. Like they're two very different things. I wish they weren't quite as different. And I also, I think it probably varies from institution to institution. For us, I don't think it's so much, you know, we can get ethical approval, but it just becomes a somewhat frustrating exercise at times trying to rationalize and justify what seems quite obviously is not compromising the confidentiality or the safety or the identity of participants. And it, it, I think it's the, the frustration that we find is just having to explain, re-explain and re-re-explain that sometimes is abundantly obvious to us, but sometimes whoever's reading it, if they come from a different research background, don't see it the same way. Uh, and so we, I feel like the ethics boards or ethics committees are populated by quantitative researchers. And sometimes if there was a better balance, it might be a little bit easier. Just the clinical experimental researchers that put people into labs to study their behaviors and reactions is not what we're doing. No. That's what research ethics was really about. Like that's the background, the history of research ethics was people yeah. doing interventions on other humans and making sure that they weren't hurting them. And that's not what we're doing. So it's a, it's a fundamentally different paradigm and it makes it challenging sometimes. And um, like Lisa said, it depends on the university. Yeah, I know that for me, as I was trying to get IRB approval for, for my study, one of the challenges that I ran into was, you know, it felt like the review board wanted to know exactly what my study was going to look like from start to finish before I even started it. And I simply couldn't tell them that, right? Because no, you can you know, like a, a core tenant of not only action research, but my own researcher philosophy is that you have to let things emerge organically, right? And it's like we talked about last time, Lisa, we talked about in, in, in our speed round, we, we talked about research questions, right? And it was like, well, why do you even need them, right? Before you, you know, like it's, you should let dive into the context and allow for these questions to emerge and allow for your path to emerge organically as you weave in and out of these complex issues working with people. But that wasn't good enough for my institutional review board, you know, and I had to really <laughs> work with my advisor to figure out how I could find that sort of middle ground where I could say, well, these are sort of the angles I'm taking and these are some of the questions that I might be asking, you know, not going to say I'm, I'm going to ask all of them. And maybe I'll ask some of them, 
but this is the direction that I'm going in. And ultimately we got it through, but for me, that was sort of the, the challenge that I ran into was in short, they wanted to see exactly what I was doing from start to finish. And I'm taking a one step in front of the other approach, even though it is my dissertation. So a little bit of a conflict there. Swati, who is a current PhD student at the National Institute of Educational Planning and Administration, wanted to address the following idea or question, right? Once you know your positionality, what is next? Is positionality to be utilized as booster for research work? To motivate oneself to be more responsible and more genuine about their research? So Swati wants and is basically wants to know more about like once you identify your positionality, what is next, right? What does that lead to? How is that? How could that be utilized within your research? It's all tricky because the answer is going to vary a little bit depending on what the nature of each person's research is. But I think it's a really important question. This what next question. So now I know how I fit in here, but what am I supposed to do with that information? Ultimately, it should guide the types of questions and type of inquiry you want to engage in and how how you do that. So for example, like you were saying, Adam, you can go into a study with a plan. Everybody has a plan and that's important, but you also have to recognize that depending on how you're situated within that research as it emerges, the plan has to change depending on what is presented to you. So for example, if you go in with kind of a, an idea of what you want to accomplish through the research or what answers you're seeking and you don't get those answers, well, now what? Is it because the answers didn't exist? Is it because of how you were asking the questions? Is it about who you weren't or were including in the research? And there's all kinds of those questions and positionality is one of those questions. So one of the important things is then once you, you kind of situate yourself, being able to then ask yourself some questions about how are you thinking about this work? How are you relating to others? What are your own inherent structures of understanding that are influencing how you're interpreting and what you're seeing and what you're not seeing. And then ultimately that becomes a piece of the data from which you're gleaning your interpretation or your analysis. And so you, you have to, you can't, it's not just enough to say, well, here I am in the research and this is why, and then be done with it. Because that actually isn't informative. Like it's nice that you've observed that, but it, what does it actually mean? And that it has to have meaning. So then it, the next step is once you've identified that, figuring out how to explain its meaning and the impact that it has on the work that you're doing. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And to add to that, one of the things that I was thinking is, you know, taking a page from asking questions, like you said, Lisa and Adam said. So once, do you know your positionality? as a fixed entity or is, is your positionality always changing depending on the relationships that you have. So I think positionality, you can know your positionality when it comes to a particular context, but as you grow, as you change, as your relationships change, your positionality is also going to change. I mean, I know this happened to me as I grew and learned in Peru doing the work that I was doing. It was this slow change of learning as kind of this absolute outsider who was invited by a friend to come down and try to understand and then building some relationships and then being kind of an insider outsider and then being part of a, a network within Peru and now feeling like I have this sense of mutual responsibility. My physical appearance, I mean, I've gotten older, but my physical appearance didn't change that much. I got some more wrinkles under my eyes and stuff like that. But my positionality as a man from the United States, from, you know, who has a particular orientation, who has a particular history and having reflected deeply upon those things, 
those things may not have changed necessarily, but how those things are enacted in the context and the relationships that I have have changed. And that's part of your positionality. So I think that it's, this is another really great question because once you know your positionality, what's next is, well, you have to relearn your positionality and you have to relearn your positionality over and over again. It's part of that iterative process in action research. So, you know, once you have that reflexive, reflective capacity to continue to learn your positionality, what's next, it depends on the context. You know, it could be a booster for your work. It could be to motivate yourself to be more responsible and more genuine. It could be knowing when to engage and, and maybe when to let others take the lead because you know your positionality. Now, there's so many things that you can then decide upon once you know your positionality that I think it's really important to continually reflect on it. So I have a follow-up question to that, Joe or, or Lisa. What I hear you saying is that your positionality can be fluid, which I agree with, right? And it's something that it doesn't necessarily just, it doesn't just emerge and all of a sudden, there it is. So you should constantly be sort of reflecting on that and asking questions to identify what your role and positionality is within your study. My question is, to what extent is that something that you might communicate with the people that you're working with, you know, explicitly? My experience, you know, as it relates to my positionality, it's a very internal thing. It's something that I might write about and it just stays in my paper and it's not something you know, that I communicate very often, certainly not explicitly, and especially not, frankly, with, you know, the people in the communities that I'm working with, but I'm starting to ask myself, why not? Why is that not something that's part of my dialogue in this participatory process? So do you have experience of that in the field, or is that something that you communicated in the past, and how is that received with people that you're working with? How does that influence your own positionality? Or is it more, or is it just like an internal thing that is kind of on the sidelines guiding your study, and that's that. I think the, the first thing is positionality is a very research-oriented term, so it's probably not something you're going to sit down and talk to people about very often. You know, your participants aren't necessarily interested in what positionality means. They might be. It depends on the research. But if you frame it as authenticity, then that's a different question. Because I think, to me, they're intimately connected, is when you're working with people in a community, do you want to be your authentic self? And what is that? In order to understand your positionality, then you also have to understand who you are in relation to the work that you want to do and the people that you want. And oftentimes, I think we make the mistake, and, and researchers are often criticized for this, is they kind of helicopter in and helicopter out. So they take what they need from a community and then they leave and there's nothing left in the community. And I think ethically, that's pretty questionable at the best of times. So if we go back to this notion of authenticity and who we want to be, if that's okay with people, if that's what they want, then that's fine. But you can't actually um, ask for people's agreement or consent to that unless you can articulate it for yourself. So, you know, that fundamental question, why are you here and what do you want? is a really important one. And to just simply answer, well, I'm here to do research. Well, why would they care about that? That doesn't impact them. It doesn't make their communities or their lives a better place. And so we have to kind of dig deeper into positionality to think about what's reflected in that. And I think, again, authenticity is a key piece of that, that people respond to. If you say, well, I'd like to articulate my positionality in this research, you're going to get a glazed over look on people's faces because now you're just speaking to them in research jargon. But if you can just sit down and have a conversation like Joe was saying, like, 
when I do the work that we do in Africa, you know, I'm a white woman from Canada who has led a very privileged existence compared to the people that we're working with. Why would they care for me to come in and do anything? And so that changes the nature of how I approach the work that we do and the participatory nature of that, because otherwise I'm just yet another person who's taking something from people who haven't actually agreed to give anything. Yeah. And I would say I would agree with that. And I think adding to that, I really like the, what you said, Lisa, about positionality and authenticity are different, but very intimately related. You know, they're deeply woven together. And I think that learning your positionality allows you to be authentic. Learning your positionality continually also allows you to learn how to introduce yourself in a way that can build connection. So recognizing like, for example, if I'm in a new community in Peru, I've been in Peru for 10 years now off and on, right? So I talk about my shared knowledge of certain facets of Quechua culture or saying like, oh, I know somebody that you might know. Do you know this person? Those kinds of connections are part of your positionality, right? They're also a way to introduce yourself in an authentic way. So not everybody's going to have the same positionality, but I'm just going to use myself as, as an example to highlight this point. If you can introduce yourself in a way that is both authentic and allows people to see connections with you, it allows you to engage ethically because it means here I am, I'm being authentic. It's an invitation for other people to be authentic without demanding it or requesting it in an awkward way or a way that might be socially uncomfortable. And it's also just a way of showing that you care and that this is not like I'm here because there's something that I think I can contribute to something else. And I can work with you because you can also contribute to that. And I think that understanding your positionality. So one, it allows you for someone like me, for example, coming down to Peru, it allows me to break out of certain stereotypes that people might have about the white male researcher coming down because, you know, people have those stereotypes and those stereotypes are based in truth, but I don't embody those stereotypes in the same way. I might embody some of them, but I don't embody all of them. And I don't engage with those stereotypes, especially the most negative ones. So it allows understanding your positionality and, and learning how to communicate in an authentic way, like Lisa said, allows you to be more able to communicate in authentic ways and build relationships better. Thanks, Joe and Lisa. Super informative. Let's take a let's take a different look at positionality or look at it from a different angle. Disha, who is also a PhD student at the National Institute of Educational Planning and Administration, acknowledges the importance of positionality in the sense that it allows you to stay entwined with your research area. However, Disha is wondering if it could perhaps limit you or your perception or thoughts as a researcher. So what do you think? Can, can taking a strong positionality get in the way or create barriers or borders to the way that you're perceiving or acting within your research? So I think there's a distinction here. Taking a position and positionality are not necessarily the same thing. So if I want to take a position and I want to dig my heels in and see the world from that position, then absolutely, you're only going to see it from one place. But positionality is understanding where you are in it. So think of positionality almost a little bit as a something that has movement to it. So it can turn 360 degrees. It can roll forwards and backwards. What it is is about allowing you to see 
uh, phenomena from different perspectives, but still being grounded in a particular place. So I bring to the research my experience as a teacher, my experience as a leader, my experience as a woman, my experience, like that all informs the lenses through which I view things. But I've learned over time that that's not the only thing that I am. And so if I only choose to look at things one way, then yeah, it's going to limit you. Um, but in reality, we're all limited by the experiences that we have in some way, because that's how we've learned to frame and make sense of the world. Now, can you completely set aside all of those experiences? I don't think you can. I, I know some people, we get into this argument about objectivity and subjectivity all the time. Some people are better at it. I'm not. And I can own that. I can honestly say that how I parent, how I lead, how I teach, all of those things inform one another. And I can articulate that to people, but I can also own the fact that those things allow me to see the world in a particular way. But I've also learned over time that there's an openness that's required in order to understand the world more completely. So for example, I don't understand what it's like to be uh, a Sierra Leone student who's experienced gender-based violence because I haven't done that. I'm not that person. I haven't lived in that place through those experiences, but that doesn't mean that I can't hear and listen and see them through the feminist lens. Someone else might look at it from a very different lens or, or a very different sense of positionality, and that's a good thing. The more we can learn from the more perspectives, the better we understand things. So I just think it's important that distinction, the, the positioning and positionality aren't necessarily synonymous. Yeah, that's a great distinction. I think that's really important. And I think that I'm going to go deep into the philosophical things right now. So when we talk about our perceptions and thoughts, phenomenologists like to say that you can bracket your perceptions and thoughts in ways that allow the reader, if you're about publishing research. So if this is about publishing research, rather than taking action. When you publish research, your publication is adding a minuscule amount to the grand endeavor of acquiring knowledge for, for knowledge and for action. So we are necessarily, when we write anything, our perceptions and thoughts are limited to what we can write on the page. And our pages are limited whenever we write, even if it's a book. An article is generally 16 to 30 pages a book, maybe 300 pages. How much can you actually say in those 300 pages or those 30 pages? Very little when it comes to something that is as deep and complex as human interactions and building something that is uh, new or different or, or innovative in some way. So our perceptions are necessarily limited because we're limited by, we can't just kind of mentally share all of the accumulated experiences and perceptions that we have with another person. That's not possible. The best thing we've been able to do so far is through words. And words are necessarily limited because they delimit what we can say. You know, I could talk for hours about certain things. You probably stop listening to me pretty quickly, but it may all be important stuff. So we have a lot of limitations when it comes to communication. And then we also have limitations when it comes to what we can perceive and what we can synthesize or come to understand as human beings. Because like Lisa said, all of our experiences are going to impact and our own ways of thinking and reflecting on those experiences are going to impact what we see and how we see it. One of the best ways to address that is to one, identify 
what it is, how we come to see things, which is identifying our positionality. And two, being sure to honor and listen deeply and share the perspectives of other people in as authentic way as possible. Because even if we can't understand it specifically, what they're saying might be able to connect to somebody else in a meaningful way. And we don't want to limit that. So we have a lot that we can do through our own reflexive process to make sure that we're not damaging or harming this endeavor, which is research or this endeavor that is action through the ability to listen and to ensure that we're not taking up too much space. Excellent. Thank you. I hope that was helpful for you, Disha. Let's move on to our final couple questions. Both are from Monica, PhD student at the National Institute of Educational Planning and Administration. Shout out to the National Institute of Educational Planning and Administration, by the way. It's stoked to hear that you are listening and enjoying the podcast. Keep the questions coming. We really want this to be as interactive as possible. So Monica has, I think, what's going to be our last question on positionality. I'm just going to go ahead and quote exactly what she writes. A study can be pursued from various lens, and every specific lens leads to different outcomes. Somehow, I feel our previous orientations guide our frameworks too. So is it okay to let your positionality guide your framework? Well, my immediate answer is yes. But the little voice of my being a grad student and remembering what that was like is hearing someone say, well, no, you can't. The reason I think you can is I, I just don't think it's possible to remove some of those orientations to suggest that they're not going to guide them. It's almost naive to think that somehow they're not going to guide them. I think owning it and recognizing how they guide your view is the important piece. And the idea that these lenses that we're viewing things through are not lens one and beside that lens two and beside that lens three they're often overlapping and there's a uniqueness to the the view that we have through those multiple lenses because someone else would look through those same lenses and and not see the object on the other side as clearly or they might see it more clearly and so i think what we have to begin to understand is what lenses do we bring and how do they inform the work that we're doing and so one of the keys especially in doctoral study is that you're constantly having to justify the choices that you're making. And I think it's a, it, it, for me, that's one of probably the, the best exercises that I did in conducting my PhD research is it allowed me to really think through why I was making the choices that I did. And I remember my supervisor at the time when I was writing about leadership and I was talking about this notion of questioning because what came about when I was talking to the participants, I did a a collaborative inquiry. So we were working on this together and we recognized that we were all very habitually question askers. And so, but it was also not received positively from the people to whom we were asking questions because people took that very personally sometimes like you were questioning their authority or you were questioning their decisions. And for us, we didn't really see it that way. We saw it asking questions as trying to understand the process and the outcome and the purpose and those things. But had we not paused and actually really thought about why we were asking questions and where that came from and what was our history of asking questions, I'm not sure we could have framed it the way that we did as a very positive kind of leadership quality in this questioning. But for us, there were five of us. We didn't come at that from the same place. We didn't, like each of us had different orientations, different lenses, different experiences, different positions. And so it was fantastic as part of that is just by articulating it, we came to realize 
the commonality between us and our approach to the things that we were doing, but also the differences and how they impacted us. And so that all came from just a discussion of positionality, right? And so I think as a researcher, yes, your positionality, it's going to guide your framework no matter what you do. You can either say it is or say it isn't, but it's going to because how do you change that? And so while we were talking earlier, I remembered there's a really interesting article. It's by, I think it's Michael Rothenberg on multidirectional memory. And he talks about how memory, like when you're thinking about past experiences, how your reconstruction of them is based on all the interactions you've had in between the time of that memory and where you are currently and how memory is informative and it creates a lens for us, but it's not always accurate, but that doesn't mean it has less impact or less value. And so these are all the types of deeper, bigger questions you start to ask as opposed to just, is it going to guide our framework? The easy answer is absolutely it's going to. You can try to bracket it out like you're saying in phenomenology, but I never found that that was even something I could do or even necessarily wanted to do because I didn't interact with the kind of research the way that I wanted to, and it still doesn't. And so the openness to that, letting it guide the framework, but with that comes the ability to explain how. And that's the key part, is knowing it and being able to explain how it is. And then you remove this kind of critical notion of bias unfairly impacting the results of your research or your study, because then people will say, well, you were a teacher, therefore you only see it through that lens, without ever acknowledging all the other pieces that come into play in that interpretation. So... Awesome. And I'm going to jump in here for a second because uh, this question is really reminding me of a recent interaction that I had with my dissertation chair. Shout out Dr. Mary Bryden Miller at the University of Louisville Education Leadership Evaluation Organization Development Program. So I recently submitted a draft of my proposal for my dissertation, first three chapters. And like I said, I had a section, my reflexivity guided by certain questions. So I just want to read a little bit of an excerpt from that and Mary's response, because I think it relates to your response, Lisa, as well as the question at hand. So one of the questions that I have in my section on reflexivity is the following. What areas of this study do I have influence? And what areas do I not have influence? And what areas should I not have influence? And I go on to talk a little bit about my positionality and role in the program that I'm evaluating for my dissertation. And the final paragraph in addressing that question, which I wrote, is the following. Given that I cannot let my positionality as an insider or outsider within influences studies analysis or findings, the primary purpose of this study is to improve international service learning program design based on community resident perspectives. I am not a community resident, therefore I cannot contribute to the stance of community residents. Given my involvement in ISLP Peru, the International Service Learning Program I'm evaluating, I may feel inclined to incorporate my own stance and perspective with regard to how to improve program design. While there may be a place for that type of input in this study, I do not feel it should be incorporated into the data analysis or findings. And Mary responded with the following two comments. With respect to letting my positionality as an insider or outsider within influence the study, her response was, well, of course they do. These roles and experiences are key to helping you make sense of everything. And in response to me saying that given my involvement, I may feel inclined to incorporate 
incorporate my own stance and perspective into the program design and thus the findings, she said, let's discuss this. I don't see how it's possible for this to not influence the analysis and findings. It's about being honest and conducting these critical reflections that you make this credible. So that was super insightful for me. And I thought it might be insightful for those of you who are listening that might be trying to make sense, you know, your enrollment and how you may or may not influence your study, including the frameworks in which you're, you're looking at your study. You know, it strikes me in that my, my supervisor, her name is Kathy Sanford. She's at the University of Victoria. And honestly, I, I couldn't have asked for a better supervisor. And one of the things she left me with is she was very, very deeply aware of our use of language when we're framing something. And so I think Mary's comment about your influence is a really important one, because had you said that your positionality will not dictate the outcomes, then I think she would have agreed with you. Right, because I think that's essentially what you're saying. But will it influence? Of course it will. I would have said the same thing. But it's all a matter of the verb choice along the way. So if you shift it slightly and choose a different languaging of it, it probably becomes more accurate. Right? Because you're not trying to dictate it, but you are influencing it. And that subtle shift is probably more indicative of what you're actually looking for. And it was my supervisor who taught me that. And so now I'm extremely critical, much to the chagrin of uh, students and you know reviews that I do and things like that, because I ask those types of questions all the time. Is this really what you mean? Or is it more like this? And so sometimes that those subtle differences make it easier for you to actually explain what it is you're intending. Thank you. And now I get to go back to the drawing board with more advice from Dr. Lisa Stark. <laughs> what do you think, Joe? Yeah, no, basically what Lisa said was similar to what I was going to say is it's, you know, like you all said, it's impossible not to let it influence or guide your framework, but it shouldn't determine or it shouldn't determine your framework. So it's okay to let it guide your framework, but it shouldn't determine your framework. And that, you know, that's just subtle distinction is really important. And these are the subtle nuances that are really important to think through. But it is important to think about when your positionality is guiding your framework, it also means that you're open to learning. Mm -hmm. So if you let your positionality guide your framework and you have the iterative reflexive process, you're learning to broaden or shift your framework and your positionality as well. So it's really important to think about that too, because it's going to influence it. But it also means that it allows you to learn because you need to start from somewhere in order to learn. But maybe I'll just tag on to that because I think I, I get the sense just from the questions that some of your listeners are graduate students and new researchers. And, and I think it's important to understand that, you know, like I'm, I'm a, a few years ahead of you in terms of wondering about these things, as is Joe. So sometimes it's a little bit easier for us to kind of articulate these things. And I also want to acknowledge that the, the notion of reflexivity is deeply embedded in my practice. That doesn't mean it has to be deeply embedded in everyone else's. So it feeds into the type of research I do. And so for me, I see it everywhere and I see its fundamental role, but other people don't see it that way. So I could, for example, publish an article with a really uh, rich explanation of reflexivity and somebody might say, well, I don't understand how that's necessary to the research. So really then it's my responsibility as a researcher to better articulate that. And so knowing that people had listened to the, the previous podcast and I actually saw value in it to me 
is a great reminder of how important these types of conversations are. Because when we have, even though a podcast is still not completely multi-directional in that the listeners are listening at a different time and able to pose questions after the fact, the conversation itself still exists. Whereas in a research article or when we're writing about the results of a study, it's not as clear. And so that's why I think these types of questions that people have asked today emerge is that they are trying to grapple with how to understand these things. Research is complex and there's so much jargon and paradigm and this and that and methodology and all those types of things. And I think it's a product of the rich conversations that we're having and also giving ourselves permission to not be experts while we're standing in the blocks, like, you know, in the starting gate or my kids do tracks. So I'm thinking of the blocks. That's why you're not required to be the expert at that point. Even when you get to the finish line, you're not necessarily an expert because you don't know where you finish in that. So giving ourselves permission to play around with these questions and wonder about them and at times set them aside and at other times focus on them. And this is part of the research journey that allows us to continue to learn and refine our craft. And going back to the purpose of the podcast being action research, there is an obligation in that to the communities which we work. And I think all of these questions are helping us to better understand how we interact with those communities and support the needs that they have. And so I guess I'm just really thankful that the pe people who are listening have asked these questions because so often I think they get overlooked until it becomes really difficult to answer a question and the people don't know why and they don't know who to ask, right? So talking about reflective practice is not something we typically don't have a course during your PhD program on how to be reflective. Like those things, if you have those in one of your universities, I would love to know about it because I would love to actually be there myself. Uh, but it's a really key part of what we do. And so asking the questions, you're already on the path to becoming a, a better, uh, more reflexive educator. Yeah, absolutely. And Lisa, I, I totally agree with you too. It's, I think these questions are great. They're so intriguing. And I think it does show so much about how much further along these students um, are in, in really understanding uh, the nuances of, of action research and really trying to make sense of them and make them meaningful in, in practice. So this has been a really good exercise, I think, to be able to break them down further. So we've got one last question and then, and then let's wrap it up. It's also from Monica. And her final question, I think this is a good way to wrap up the pod for this week at least, is very straightforward. What conflicts can one experience in the process of self-reflexivity? And, you know, to Lisa and Joe, I would say, as you think about this question, you know, I think that there's perhaps a, a theoretical sort of straightforward answer, but it'd be really cool maybe to hear about the, the conflicts that you've experienced in the process of self-reflexivity, if there's something that rises to the surface. So with that said, I will give you the floor. What conflicts can one experience in the process of self-reflexivity? Joe, you want to go first or do you want me to? I was going to let you go first, but I... <laughs> and I have, I think, a fairly concrete example, because I think this process of self-reflexivity also requires a degree of vulnerability at times, which is hard, because vulnerability is something we typically allow ourselves with people that we trust and know. And then when you're doing research, we don't always know and aren't always able to trust people the same way because of our, our depth of the relationships that we have with them. 
So when I write about, I write sometimes in the autoethnographic work I have about having an anxiety disorder. Like that's a really difficult thing to write about at the best of times because it's hard for people to understand and there's all the, the continued stigma. Yet there's an evolution of people's understanding, but there's still stigmas and things like that and judgment and all those kind of things. But that vulnerability to me is a key threshold from which I learn how I want to interact with people. And so going back to what I said earlier about this notion of authenticity, that to me is fundamental to my stance in the world with everything. And so I'm a very much a what you see is what you get. So always having something that's hidden or not for kind of public consumption, I guess, is something that is a choice that people make along the way. And I'm not saying everybody has to reveal all of their deepest, darkest secrets, but when it's the subject of your research, then that reflexivity results in a vulnerability that you, you can't separate the two. So if I talk about having an anxiety disorder, that makes me vulnerable no matter what I do. And you run the risk then of people either misunderstanding or using that information in a way that it wasn't intended or using it negatively. And so I think there's always the risk of that. And so I would suggest to people who are listening, especially if they're contemplating subjects like that, is you have to really think about what is the purpose of revealing that information? What is the purpose of discussing you know, something like an anxiety disorder. And for me, it's been incredibly cathartic in that the number of people who recognize themselves in those stories, because I do a lot of more narrative type of autoethnographic work. So, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, why do we use uh, gender neutral pronouns? Well, part of it is representation and allowing people to see themselves in the world in a way that is really overdue. And so it's the same types of things when we have conversations about the you know aspects of our research or putting it out there if people connect to it then i think you're actually achieving something if you it's different than publishing an article in a top tier journal like that's part of academia but it doesn't necessarily you know connect to people's soul or give them a sense of where they could be or how they could actually take something that may be viewed negatively and turn that into something that's fundamental to who they are in terms of being a researcher. And so with that risk, there can be reward, but at the, at the outset, there's still risk. And so people have to be really cognizant of, in being reflexive, does that require them to also be open? And to what degree? And those are questions I think people have to ask themselves when they engage in that process and what's the value of being vulnerable if you choose to go that path. For me, this is similar to what Lisa was saying with kind of my own experience. When I have had conflicts when thinking through my reflexivity, it's what happens when you find things that may be problematic in your own identity and how do you deal with that? You know, these are the kinds of things that happen if you authentically engage in this process of self-reflexivity. How do you deal with your identity when other people from your identity profile might have caused harm to the same group of people. What do you do when, you know, key aspects of things that you like and care about are actually harming people and you didn't realize it until you learned about these things, you know, economically or culturally, like there are moments of trying to think through things like in my experience. So something I really respect and find a lot of value in is learning about petroculture. 
but I also have to be very reflexive about not appropriating that and not trying to take that as on as my identity. Instead, I'm very, very strong in my identity as somebody who grew up in Baltimore. But those were choices and that happened through self-reflexivity. So how do I honor and appreciate something that I find valuable while also not harming that through this reflexivity? And those are conflicts that happen when you learn more. That's a really good point, Joe. And I think it's, I'm really glad you raised that. It comes up when we look at things. I often use a feminist lens to look at things, but you know, as a feminism has also traditionally excluded people as well. And suddenly people's criticism, if I identify as a feminist, their criticism of white feminism's exclusion of black feminism or the conflict between them. These are all things that I think are, are sometimes you can't anticipate. And definitely as a younger scholar, I asked a lot of questions. I was on a panel with someone once who was borderline combative about notions of feminism. And I didn't understand why at the time. I, I was really unaware of how problematic it was. And had it not been for that moment and being reflexive, I don't know that I would have interrogated it. And thus, I would have continued to be in the same counterproductive space. And so I think being reflective is an openness to our own flaws and our own desire to continue to evolve and learn and understand not only the privilege of being a researcher, but the problems associated with being a researcher as well. Awesome stuff. And Joe, I wanted to follow up on your point as well, because it, it made me recognize something that I'm, I'm currently grappling with. So I figured I'd share it with you all and our audience as it relates to a current conflict that I'm facing. So I live in the community where I'm also doing my dissertation research. And, you know, I consider myself as it relates to my positionality sort of an outsider to them, right? I take, it's taken from uh, her and Anderson's. They write a wonderful book called The Action Research Dissertation and they offer a continuum to try and, you know, explore where you might fall on this positionality scale. And, you know, I've been living in Sacramento for a long time. That's the community that I'm working in. And everything that, and I, I recognize that I'll always be a white male in the outsider side of me, right? But where my energy goes is focusing on my role as an insider. I'm like, where, as I exist within the community. And so, you know, spending time in the community, farming together in the fields, all the informal time that we spend together is so rich in developing my role in the community. And then at some point, there's this like formality that rises to the surface where it's like, I have to switch to researcher role. And if it, whether it's a formal conversation or an interview and perhaps there's a boilerplate or perhaps, you know, I asked to record a conversation and something as simple as that, it just like completely shifts the energy and it almost feels like sets back all of this like energy that I've been putting towards like really establishing myself as someone that's that, that wants to be there for, without any motives you know acknowledging the, the, the historical context of being a white person in, in Peru and in, in the indigenous Andes where there is a history of colonialization a legacy of colonialization and to me, that creates a huge conflict, right? As it relates to my own self-reflexive practice, because I find myself asking like, who am I, right? What is my role in this? What, am I a researcher? Am I a white guy? Am I a farmer? 
and it just creates this like existential dialogue that I would absolutely characterize as a conflict that that has been risen, that has risen as I incorporate more formal processes of my research into, frankly, what's also day-to-day -day livelihood. So I just thought I would share that with you all. I'm not sure if you, if you have any response or not, but thanks for thanks for hearing me out on that one. I think you hit the nail on the head with the conflicts that come up. I think that was a great way of framing it. Definitely. Well, that I think might then be a good place to leave off for today. We got through uh, most of our questions. If we did not get to your question, we, we didn't forget about you. I think this episode went really well and I think you can expect to hear another round of us getting on the pod and responding to listener questions. Call it a mailbag, if you will. So first and foremost, thank you Lisa, for taking the time to come back on and offer such insightful responses for our listeners. Jill, as always, thank you. For those of you who have further questions, reach out to us on Twitter, the Action Research Podcast. We're, we're always on. Follow us, we'll follow you back, and let's keep this awesome dialogue going so that we can continue to explore what is the complex and messy world of action research. I just want to do one more shout out. I want a, a special thank you to Shika uh, for- Shika. She really did an awesome job. These questions were amazing. Thank you for putting all this together. Thanks, Shika. Thank you, Lisa, for answering these questions. These conversations really help PhD scholars out there to guide through their research. And most of the questions are not answered. So this podcast really helped them to have those answers. Thank you. Oh, it's thank my you pleasure. All. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast.